You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. It was late one night. I was driving with my friend Stephen uh, out in a neighborhood, and it was very dark. The streetlights were low. We couldn't hardly see anything. And, and out of nowhere, I'm driving, out of nowhere, a car, a parked car, appeared in the middle of the street in front of us. We didn't see it there. It had been there. The reflectors weren't very visible. It was a dark colored car. And you know what you do. You, you get a very little time to react, so you just slam on brakes and, scream. and we're like screaming, ah! And it was, it was one of those really intense moments. And we're just kind of screeching and careening through the road. And it was, I mean, literally like inch and inch. Before we hit that car, our car stopped. And we sat with wide-eyed silence. You know that moment? And then we were like, ah! I remember we rolled down the windows. There was a sunroof. We opened it up, and we were like, yes, we're alive. We're alive. Like, and, I mean, it was, it was one of those moments like, did we almost die? I think we almost died. I think we were going maybe 45 miles per hour, hitting a parked car at 45 miles an hour head on. That's injuries. Sometimes you don't survive that. I'm wondering, have you ever almost died? Yep. You all have if you've driven in Wilmington on college. Um, you didn't even know it. You didn't even know it, but you almost died. I wish I could tell the stories about all the times I almost died, but I already did the kids' announcement, and we don't have enough time for all that. Like, we, I have almost died too many times to talk and too many stories to tell. Uh, my mom's convinced that I have my own personal guardian angel named Clarence who's just, like, got a leash on me and just yanks me back every time I get this close. Winston Churchill, uh, he is often quoted, a uh, great, great world leader, and this is something that Winston Churchill said. He said, nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. <laughs> Take that in. Bullets zooming over your head, you're like, <sighs> I'm alive. <laughs> I'm alive. Life. Life. It's exciting. And we, we crave it. And not just like the eking by, kind of like dragging through, but the real vibrant life. We're in this teaching series uh, from the book of Ephesians. And, uh, and we've entitled, uh, this, we're studying the whole book of Ephesians, we've entitled the series Battleground. Because as you look through the book of Ephesians, what you see is a picture of basically this. There is this battle going on for our souls. It really is. It's serious business. It's nothing to be joked about. And the book of Ephesians is, is nothing short of a, a field guide for what God has done for us to find victory in this battle. So last week we were in chapter 1. This week we're going to flip over to chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible today, go ahead and pull it out. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, feel free to grab one on your phone. They've got a, a great free Bible app uh, called the Version Bible app. Totally not offended if you want to uh, open a Bible on your phone. And, and also, we give away Bibles for free every week. So look under your seats. There's a few scattered, and also there's some by the coffee table if you want to go get one or grab one before you leave today. Everyone needs a good readable Bible. We'll be in the book of Ephesians, and, uh, and in chapter 2, I want to kind of set us up for that. Uh, last week, I told you that this week we would talk more about the book of Ephesians and the people that it was written to. Uh, the book of Ephesians was originally written as a letter from the Apostle Paul. Okay, Paul was... How do I put this nicely? Uh, he was a scumbag. Okay, this guy was a total, uh, uh, man, he was just evil. The things that Paul did uh, before he became a Christian were terrible. He actually murdered and persecuted Christians. Something amazing happened, though. 
He met Jesus. And Jesus transformed the way that he thought and transformed the way that he lived, and he becomes the greatest missionary to ever live and wrote most of the New Testament of the Bible. Incredible. And so we got Paul. He writes this. It's, it's originally a letter. Uh, a lot of the books in the New Testament of the Bible are letters that have been compiled into a, a bound form that we read together today, but it's written to the church in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, interesting tidbit of information. My dad was in the Air Force, and I was born in Adana, Turkey, at Injurlik Air Force Base. So some of you guys that have Air Force backgrounds, you might know about that base. Um, so when I think about the, the, the city of Ephesus, I'm like, oh, so close, so close. Uh, the city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, um, it, was a, it was a bad place. It really was. Uh, it, was it, it was densely populated. They say as densely populated as, as modern-day New York City. Uh, smaller population, but as dense. And you've got all these people. And what happens when you get a really large population densely crowded into a metropolis-type area? You end up with a whole lot of craziness, right? I don't even have to explain that, do I? I mean, like, you get too many people in one place, and craziness breaks out. And this is Ephesus. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of those details. So last week we studied chapter 1. This week we're going to jump in chapter 2, and as battle takes as, as Paul takes the Ephesians uh, into this discussion of, of battlefield, he doesn't use those words, those are ours. What he does is he takes the Ephesians on a little bit of a road trip down memory lane to tell them, hey, I want to remind you what it was like before you became a Christian. Some of you are in that boat today. Some of you are in the boat where you're like, you know what, I've been a Christian. I maybe take it for granted or maybe I don't, I don't know, but man, what was it like before Others of you might be in the room today and you're like, I, I think that's still me. I'm not sure what I believe about church and God. I want you to know, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here and I hope that you'll stick around and just see kind of what it looks like to see a transition. Paul jumps right in in chapter 2. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't. So we're going to jump in. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. It's going to be on the screen behind me too. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. It says, as for you, talking to the Ephesians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now in work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were objects, uh, we were by nature deserving wrath. That sound familiar? A life, just kind of like seeking whatever feels good, right? That's kind of that's the world we live in. He's talking to a group of people and he starts out with this phrase. Uh, can we go back to verse 1? He says, as for you, you were dead. After you, you were dead. So they, so they were dead. They're not anymore, I guess. It makes me think of the Monty, uh, the Monty Python thing. Uh, she turned me into a newt. I got better. <laughs> if you remember that, it's funny. YouTube it. It'll still be funny. So, you know, I used to be dead. I got better. <laughs> you know, uh, as for you, you were dead. And he said something caused that. You were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Let's talk about that for a second. When I think about this idea, you, you were dead. I think about, maybe I'm weird, I think about zombies. Like, I don't know, a couple decades ago, zombies were only for the really weird college kids that didn't have a whole lot of friends, and I'm sorry if that's you, but you know that's true. And like, but now, like, zombies are mainstream. Like, everybody's, you got, there's, there's major motion pictures that have been made about it, and an awesome TV show made about it, and you know that it's mainstream. When I was at Cub Scouts the other day with my son, and they were playing zombie tag, I'm like, we used to call that freeze tag, but... Oh, you get to eat each other's brains. That's cool. Um, and then it really took a new level for me when I was hanging out with my mom one night, and she was like, oh, I got to get home. Yeah, Walking Dead comes on tonight. I'm like, Mom? <laughs> you watching zombie shows? Um, they're not zombies. They're Walking Dead. It's different. But the idea of zombies is something uh, where you've got people who are, who are living even though they're dead. 
They're walking around. They're taking the advantages of walking around, but, but they're actually dead. They can't experience the benefits of being alive because they're actually dead. He starts us and says, as for you, you were dead. You were dead because of sin. Actually, he gives us two words for sin there. He says trespasses and sin. Let's take a look at these two. The first one he says is you were dead in your trespasses. Uh, trespass is, is a word that basically means crossing the line. A line has been drawn and you crossed it. Um, so God has set up these boundaries in life for us. And he says this is the place that I want you to stay. Don't go over there because it's dangerous for you. And if we cross those lines, that's called a trespass. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses. To the trespasses, when we cross those lines, it causes us something. It causes us a spiritual death to happen. It's crazy. The word death means separation. If you get right down to it. And, and spiritual death is separation from God. So trespasses, the second word he uses is sin. It literally means to miss a mark. It was an old archery term. And, you know, you'd be shooting the bow and arrow. And if you missed your target, you missed your mark, someone might say Sin. Sin. I think of it more, though, you've seen the movies of these guys who think it'd be a good idea to jump out of a hotel balcony and into the pool, but they miss. You ever seen those videos? And you're like, oh, I don't want to see this. I don't want to, I kind of do. And then it's like, and they missed the mark completely. I'm not sure that the mark that they missed was the pool. I think the mark that they missed happened a long time before the moment when they jumped out of the balcony. But spiritually speaking, when, when God has set these targets for us to hit, he set, tar- set targets like, like uh, love people, be forgiving, be obedient, seek purity, be patient, be kind. These are marks that God's set up for us to hit. And when we miss that, it's sin. Paul says, as for you, you were dead because of your trespass and your sins. And when it comes to the battleground of life, uh, trespasses and sin, they leave us in spiritual zombie mode. We walk around, and what we do is we begin to seek uh, life and enjoyment from everything else, but we can't ever really find it. They taint our character. The sin and the transgressions taint our character and our ability to interact with God because crossing those lines that God has drawn to protect us and missing the mark that God has given us to honor him leaves us separated from God and his perfection. I hope you got a chance to download uh, the free ebook that I told you about last, last week. Uh, it's called Identity Theft. Uh, it was written by a guy named Dr. Mark Moore. And a church out in Arizona, uh, they did a teaching series called Identity Theft, which was also on the book of Ephesians. And he wrote this companion uh, book to go along with, with the book of Ephesians. It's free. Uh, we'll just leave that slide up for a few minutes. You can uh, write those links down and, and download the book for free. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at some of the things that... Uh, that Dr. Moore addresses in this book because what he did, he's done several times, he took a, a trip to Ephesus and he's, he's, he's a scholar, he's done a lot of research in the city of Ephesus. I feel like if we can take a look into the world that the Ephesians lived in, we can understand them a little bit better. And, and by doing so, we can then apply it to our lives and say, and now that I understand them, I think that I can understand what God's trying to say to me a little bit. Uh, we're going to change the slide here in a second, but if you do want this book, uh, you can also visit jointheventure.com, which is our website. Go to our blog, and I, it's the most recent blog. It will give you information for this as well. We're going to take a look at a couple of images that Dr. Moore took in Ephesus and, and, and look at some of the research he did on these. Um, so here's the first image. I want to take a look at this, this first image. Um, take it in, okay? This, what you're looking at is a piece of basically concrete, uh, and it's got some etchings in it, okay? Uh, and, and so what you're looking at, I'll show you, tell you first of all, is... Um, up here in the, in the left corner, can we circle that? Do we have that little slide? There it goes. Uh, that, that's a heart. Do you see it? It's a heart. Uh, and then down here, 
that's actually a woman's head. And you can compare it to other uh, art. And so that's what we're looking at. It's a heart and a woman's head. And what, what it says, and this is obviously a foot, okay? This is an advertisement to a brothel. It says, if your heart wants this, go that way. Now, you'll find that in Ephesus, uh, this type of advertisement is fairly common. And it's because that this type of immorality, uh, this type of promiscuity was very popular. In fact, it was part of their system of worship. Uh, they, they worshipped a, a goddess named Artemis, for example. And she was a fertility goddess. And a lot of the things they did, they'd, they'd go to a temple and they would, well, they would do things in there that, that I'm not going to talk about. And it was a way to worship that goddess. Very prevalent in their culture. Immorality was everywhere. I want to take a look at a, a different image. Uh, this next image is, uh, this is a skull. Uh, and I don't know if you can see it. Let's go into the next slide. There's actually three little holes that, that uh, I guess, archaeologists have decided. This was found at the site of a gladiatorial ring uh, where gladiators would fight. And those three uh, holes in his skull actually came from a trident, a little three-pronged pitchfork-looking thing. The gladiatorial fights, you, you've seen these in movies and, and you've heard about them in history, uh, they were very common. They were a, an amazingly popular source of entertainment for the Ephesians. Uh, this level of violence was something that thousands of people would gather around and they would watch people brutally murder, murder each other. Now, you've seen the movies, but this is real life. Uh, children would come and cheer on their favorite gladiator and parents would encourage that. The violence at this level is, is kind of absurd, right? It's kind of crazy. But I want to tell you, this is an interesting point that Dr. Moore makes, is that it's really no more graphic than some of the video games that we play every day. Games like Halo and Call of Duty, where the goal is to just straight up shoot people in the head. Um, and so this level of violence, very, very prominent in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus uh, the, was also a very populated city, like I said before, and what they had was a lot of entertainment. You can't have all those people without uh, having something to do, right? And so they'd have stuff like this, this next image. This is actually what they called an open-air mall. Uh, and so imagine between these columns, just tons of tables and people selling stuff and goods. And, and, uh, and a, it's not all just, you know, daily wear. It'd be stuff that you could have for fun. And, and often there would be places that would be kind of like a, a pub or a bar where people would go taking alcohol or other drugs and kind of, you know, take the edge off of life. This was a form of entertainment. Uh, they also, um, they had these huge... Uh, let me see here. They had a theater there that seated 28,000 people. Apparently the acoustics in that theater are amazing. And they would have these amazing plays. And some of them really good. Some of them pretty graphic and, and not so good. Uh, it was pretty impressive. And uh, they had this. They found this at one of the sites. This is actually a, a gambling game. A gambling was very popular there. And so I don't know how you played it. Um, maybe somebody can research that. We can figure it out. I don't know. Um, but what we saw is the level of entertainment in the city of Ephesus. And all of it bordered, uh, and, and all of it is, is about this idea of, of entertaining myself, feeding myself. Again, entertainment, not bad in and of itself, but some of the things we see can be a vice. Dr. Moore says that this city would make Las Vegas proud by the way that they live. Um, finally, one last image. Uh, Hang on to that, sh that shot. Uh, the, the Ephesians were very, very rich, okay? Uh, there's evidence, lots of it, that they actually had indoor plumbing, hot and cold water, toilets in their house. This is the first century, okay? Very, very rich people. They, they were so stinking rich. Many of their roads were made of marble. Yeah, marble. Like, I just want granite countertops. They, they have marble roads, okay? That's insane. Uh, but this is even crazier. Many of their roads were like this. These are hand-laid mosaics, individually hand-laid stone, and they're still here, 
2,000 years later. These were a wealthy people. Again, it's not a sin. It's not bad to have wealth. I think there's a lot of good things about wealth. Um, but I know Jesus said something about wealth. He said that where your treasure is, there your heart is also, right? And so that's something that Jesus said about wealth. It's not about what you have. It's about where it hides in your heart. Now, I don't show you all this stuff just to kind of pretend like we're having an episode of the History Channel, you know, some kind of crazy walk down memory lane so that we can dust off the relics and feel like we've, we've been Indiana Jones for a minute. Now, I show you this because I'm curious. Does any of this look familiar? We've got a world full of immorality, a world, a world that is just, just completely surrounding entertainment, violence everywhere, and wealth that people have so much that they don't even know what to do with it all. This book was written 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, but it could have been written to us today. In fact, it is. And Paul says, man, when I first met you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. It separated you from God. But... But what happens here is there is this great flipping of a coin that happens. And, and, and Paul gets into a description of God. We're going to keep going. We're going to be in verse 4 now. And I want to check out what happens uh, because God does something amazing. God looks at the, the, the zombies as we walk as spiritual zombies in the world. And he specializes in breathing life into the lifeless. He specializes in bringing hope to the hopeless and bringing peace while things are falling apart. And as Paul looks at these people, taking them on this trip down memory lane, he says, remember what your life was like before Jesus. Verse 4, but... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us, read it if you believe it, made us what? Alive. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. I got better. It is by grace you've been saved. This is the part of the story where, and my, and my friend driving down the, the road at, at night, this is the part of the story where I slammed on brakes and we barely missed it in the back of the car. We're alive. We were as good as dead, yet we're alive. But God, because of his great love for us and because he is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. As Paul describes God here, he gives us two really powerful uh, God words uh, that I want, I want to point out. Uh, I got the next verse up here underlined again. This is verse 4 again. There are going to be two words underlined. Listen to this. But because of God's great, I'm going to make sure we get up there. Go up two more forward. There we are. Because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. I want to focus on these two words. Love and mercy. Love first. We talk about love all the time here. We have a whole week that we call Love Agent Week. We focus on love. One of our three core goals as a church, we want to be God-chasing, grace-shaped, what? Love agents. We want to be love agents. We want to overflow the God's love to the world. We talk about love all the time, so I'm not going to go into that deeply. I will say last week, though, I pointed out, uh, this is some more of Dr. Moore's notes that I thought were brilliant. He goes, the love of God is not a chick flick kind of uh, surface level love. This is a saving Private Ryan while bullets are flying over my head. I'm going to do anything to dive in and save your life type of love. This is a sacrificial love. The Greeks had several words for love, and this is where we're landing there. Because of God's rich love. And then the second one, mercy. Mercy. I just looked up mercy just in the dictionary. And then I kind of, I kind of gave us an abbreviated definition of it. This is what mercy is. Um, 
Mercy is compassion that someone in authority gives to someone that they have every right to punish. I learned about mercy. Maybe you've heard me tell the story uh, at the hand of my mother. Uh, <laughs> I learned about a lot from the hand of my mother. Um, but uh, I remember we were, I got in trouble. I was talking back to her. I was doing something. Some of you heard this story before, but if you haven't, uh, you know, I, I'd been in trouble. And I remember my mom, she squatted down on my level. I'm probably five years old, six years old. She says, Chris, you can either have a spanking or you can have mercy. And I'm like, I don't know what mercy is, but I want some of that. Like, I know I don't want a spanking, right? And then she explained to me, mercy is when you deserve a punishment. But instead, I give you, I give you forgiveness. And what's really cool is, it says that God is rich in mercy. Rich. When I hear the word rich, I automatically think of one of my, my, my favorite cartoon characters from my childhood. Uh, do you remember uh, Uncle Scrooge McDuck? You remember him? Every day he would go on what was called a money swim. This dude was filthy rich. He was so rich. In fact, do we have the video clip? Let, let's check out Uncle Scrooge. Uh, at some door. E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> oh, there's only one thing better than owning a vault full of cold, hard cash, and that's swimming in it. Yeah. Swimming in it. I love around in it like a porpoise and burrow through it like a gopher and toss it up and let it hit me on the head. Toss it up and it hit me on the head. It was a very good swimmer, Scrooge McDuck. Uh, man, rich. Like when you think of rich, I don't want you to think about like I got a couple extra bucks I'm going to share. I want you to think about Uncle Scrooge. God is rich in a lot of things, but I love this passage. He says God is rich in mercy. There's a, a camp song that we sing all the time at the church camp I go to, and some of the words are waves of mercy, waves of grace. Can you imagine just being completely engulfed in mercy? Compassion showed by a person in authority who, though they deserve and every right could give you a punishment, chooses to give compassion. Waves, oceans, rich with mercy. This makes a big difference in our situation from being spiritual zombies. It really does. Maybe you're here today and uh, you've got some spiritual questions on your mind. I don't know if maybe this is your first time in church or your first time at, at this church. Or maybe you're just trying to get back in, in tune with God. I, I don't know. Um, but i got a question. Would you like to be Alive. I mean really alive. Not like just getting by, but like, woo, I am feeling this. Life is good. I have connected to God. God is rich in mercy. And what he offers is life. It's so easy to rely on the things of this world to bring us life. The entertainment, the friends, uh, the finances, the day-to-day but God says, man, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. And so the only way out of that is my rich love and mercy through which I can bring you to life. It's a rich and unconditional love. And I want to invite you to that party. If you've never, like, decided that you want to do that, today before you leave, would you please speak to me or someone else to say, you know what, I want to know more about finding life in God because I kind of get the spiritual zombie thing. Like, I feel like I'm just getting through. I want to take a next step. Uh, last week we studied through what we called the longest verse in the Bible. At least it was the longest verse in Greek. If you weren't there, it was kind of cool. Um, this week, though, we're going to look at, at another uh, kind of superlative verse. Um, Dr. Moore says this cool thing. He says that if all the verses of the Bible, uh, or if the Bible was a topographical map, you know, a map that you can see the height and depth of, of the landmass, if the Bible was a topographical map, there would be some verses that are mountaintops. 
right? And so he, he calls John 3.16 Mount Everest. He's like, that is, that's up there. That's just, I mean, that's one that gives this great truth about God. And he says this next passage might be Kilimanjaro. He said, because this is huge. This is a big God principle. We're going to jump into this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the next verse for us. It says, for it is by grace, which is very similar to mercy, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. This is a gift from God, not by works, so no man can boast. For we are God's handiwork. That word handiwork is really cool. Uh, it could also be translated masterpiece. The word handiwork is also the same word that we get the English word poem from. An artistic, very carefully crafted, special masterpiece. Listen to this. We are God's handiwork. We are his poetry. We are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. I, I want to return to the first century again. Okay, we were checking out the Ephesians, and we're at our host city, and we're looking around this battleground. And this pa passage about grace and faith, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Now, it's good theology. Like, if you want to talk theology and you want to talk about what is grace, it's unmerited favor from God for those who may not deserve it. What is faith? Well, it is our, it is our uh, beliefs put into action. And you could write theological, you know, stuff on it. But for this community of people living in Ephesus, it wasn't just theology. It was actually a big part of their way of life. This is so fascinating. I'm just going to kind of read you some of the research that I, I read from Dr. Moore. He said, if you've been, uh, well, let, let me back up here. Uh, the culture in the first century, I talked about the very wealthy culture. The sad thing is that only the top 2% of all the population had all the wealth. Top 2%, okay? There's 98% that are just like, uh, hello, like some handouts would be nice. Well, it just so happens that's how it worked out. There were these elite people, these top 2%. They were called the patrons. That's what everybody referred to them as, the patrons. One of the greatest signs of wealth for a patron was to have this huge entourage of people that were like his people. They did stuff for him, they ran his household, they followed behind him, and, and they were called his clients. So you've got a patron and client system. We actually still use those words in business today. It's pretty interesting. Um, and so the poor people, they were called clients, and the social expectation of the patrons was that they would provide all of the needs for their clients. We're talking food, clothes, education, if they need legal counsel, if they need help with housing. They would provide all of that for him. In return, this is what the clients would do. There's always give and take. The clients, in return, would show a fierce loyalty to their patron. Nobody talks junk about my patron. They're walking around, oh, hail to my patron. He's, he's awesome saying his name, doing their best to make his name famous in their city or in their village or in their community, in their town. He's my patron. He's my sugar daddy. I want to make his name great. And the client's role is to bring them honor. Uh, now, this would cost a lot of money for the patron. It would. Think about what it would cost to take care of 10, 20 families and all their food needs and all their little kids who keep on needing to eat, right? It costs a lot of money. And we might think, why in the world would someone give away all that money just for people to, like, say their name? Um, this is a culture that in America, we're, we, we don't get this. But in the Middle East, honor is everything. In fact, they're willing to give away exorbitant amounts of money in exchange for honor. This is sad. On the flip side, in American culture, we're willing to give away all of our honor if it means we can get exorbitant amounts of wealth. Yeah, I'm guilty. Um, 
What does that have to do with Ephesians chapter 2? Uh, this is what it has to do. I just want to read you a quote. It's going to be on the screen behind us. See, the Greeks, this is from Mark Moore, the Greeks had a word for all the gifts given by the patron to their clients. It was called charis, or in English, grace. The gift they give away was called the, their grace. Likewise, they had a technical term for the loyalty that the clients showed their patron. It was called pistis, or fidelity, or faith. Grace, in exchange for faith. Hence, when Paul says in verse 8, we are saved by grace through faith, he was using terms that this patron-client system that resonated deeply in the boroughs of Ephesus. Paul portrayed God as the greatest patron, providing whatever they needed. The exchange was faith for grace. When we think about faith, we, normally, we actually normally get it wrong. Um, we think faith is all about what we know. I was talking to Stan about this last week. And faith is all up here. And I know it. I believe it. It's all up here. But I love this, this re-understanding and, and using a, a better word. The word that he uses, and it's a good translation, is the word loyalty or fidelity. What, what's the difference between faith and, or, or you know, love and, and fidelity? You ask any wife in the room, would they rather their husband uh, love them or would they rather their husband be faithful to them? Fidelity has a whole different understanding when we understand that it's not about what I know and what I believe should be true. It's about how I act towards the person that I should be showing fidelity for. When it comes to my life, before I was in Christ, I was dead. Walking dead, living like a spiritual zombie, seeking life from whatever things this world could hold my attention, in this world that could hold my attention. My patron was the world. And that's what we see in the first section as we study the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But here's what God did. God slammed on the brakes, and he snatched me out of the jaws of death. He brings life into me. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but it means that I am forgiven. It means that I've been given his grace. How about you? Who are you serving? Who is your patron who is it that you spend your entire life trying to give honor to, to have fidelity for? We can never pay any of those things back, whether it's our family or their culture. We can never pay God back. The way that we pay back these immense changes in our life is through loyalty and through making the name of that thing famous. Who's your patron? Who are you living for? Who are you receiving grace, provision, from in this battlefield our spiritual journey Jesus saw us walking dead arms out dragging our feet living through life spiritual zombies and he made a way for us to get back to God's love and he offers that free of cost and our response is faith hail to my patron May his name be great. May his name be famous in the boroughs of this city. That every name will eventually call on it and say he's my Lord. I got a challenge for us today. My challenge is simple. I want you to real quick take an inventory of your day and the rest of your week and ask yourself, what's one thing I could do to make the name of Jesus famous through my life? 
What's one thing I could do? Start with one thing. What's one thing I could do to make the name of Jesus famous in my life? Let's pray together. Lord, you're the greatest patron. Uh, I don't know how you feel about being compared to people, earthly things, words like patron, king, um, because you're so much greater than any of those words. But Lord, may our brains be able to conceive the great thing you've done for us. Lord, as, as some of us may still be walking in a little bit of death, a little bit of transgression, a little bit of sin, maybe a lot of death, maybe a lot of transgression, maybe a lot of sin. Lord, what I pray is that we stop trying to pick up the pieces. We stop trying to slam on the bricks by ourselves, but instead we turn to you, the only one who is able to give life. You're the great life giver. Thank you for choosing us to be your masterpiece, your poetry. May we make your name great and famous in this land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.